The Guardian. Hello, it's John Dennis on Wednesday the 7th of April. Today they're off. Gordon Brown has fired the starting gun on the general election and the 2010 campaign begins. The future is within our grasp. It is a future fair for all. Now all of us, let's go to it. It's the most important general election for a generation. I think this is a huge, huge election. It's, it's certainly the beginning of the end for Brown. As the parties woo the youth vote, they find it's harder than just sticking a video on YouTube. There's this argument that the election of 2010 is going to be the Twitter election, but actually the young people that I spoke to seem to find that approach very patronising and just pretty embarrassing. Also in today's podcast, Barack Obama sets out his nuclear doctrine. Plus, the government cancels part of its massive order for swine flu vaccine. The Council of Europe is at the moment holding an investigation into whether people within the pharmaceutical industry were in some way influencing the World Health Organization and other politicians to encourage them to buy more stocks of, of drugs and of vaccines as well. And why the lineups of this summer's music festivals are being dominated by band reunions. First, our main story. The Prime Minister has revealed what we all suspected. The general election will be held on the 6th of May. Standing outside number 10, flanked by his cabinet, Gordon Brown promised that Labour would safeguard the economic recovery. I come from an ordinary middle-class family in an ordinary town. And I know where I come from, and I will never forget the values doing the right thing, doing your duty, taking responsibility, telling the truth, working hard, that my parents instilled in me. And over these last few months, this government at every time has fought hard, facing the biggest world recession, to fight on behalf of hard-working families on middle and modest incomes. And over the next few weeks, I will go round the country, the length and breadth of our land, and I will take two people a very straightforward and clear message. Britain is on the road to recovery, and nothing we do should put that recovery at risk. Meanwhile, David Cameron promised the Conservatives would get rid of Brown and fight for what he termed the Great Ignored. Let me tell you what I think this election is all about. It's about the future of our economy. It's about the future of our society. It's about the future of our country. It's the most important general election for a generation. And it comes down to this. You don't have to put up with another five years of Gordon Brown. There is today a modern conservative alternative that has got the leadership, that's got the energy, that's got the values to get this country moving. And if you vote conservative, you are voting for hope, you're voting for optimism, you're voting for change, You're voting for the fresh start this country, our country, so badly needs. And for the Liberal Democrats, the leader Nick Clegg said only his party offered something different from the same old politics of Labour and the Tories. It's a very exciting opportunity for everybody in in, in Britain who wants fairness, who wants real change, who wants something different. This isn't the old politics of the two-horse race between the Labour and the Conservative Party. The choice, the real choice, is between... Between the old politics of Labour and the Conservatives and something different, something new. And that's what, that's what we offer. 
Well, today's the first full day of campaigning, and The Guardian's leader writer Tom Clark says it's going to be a hard-fought contest. It's an election where the outcome's uncertain. That makes it a bit more interesting than some recent ones. But when you say they're that close, I don't know. I mean, the Conservatives are consistently ahead. The question is whether they're enough ahead to win outright, I think. What do you make of the... Well, we've not had a full day of campaigning, that's today, but uh, what do you make of their opening pitches? First thing in terms of the messages, uh, Brown wanted to play himself as a statesman, lined up with his cabinet, the great institutional dignified constitution outside the front of Downing Street. By contrast, David Cameron wants to position himself, ludicrous as it may seem, as the chippy outsider. He nipped across the bridge to County Hall and challenged Gordon Brown before Gordon Brown had even had a chance to formally announce the election. Looking out at Westminster from across the water, he's playing as the kind of uh, challenge to the Westminster establishment in a way that the, the ruler from across the water, who's going to come back and seize it for the people. After, they, uh, after their initial speeches in London yesterday, after Gordon Brown confirmed the election date, May the 6th, and the party leaders uh, went off in different directions. Uh, where did they go and why did they choose the, the venues that they did? Well, in a funny way, conventional politics was turned on its head because uh, Labour's man, Gordon Brown, went down south and the Conservative, David Cameron, went up north. Gordon Brown went to Kent and he visited two relatively marginal seats. Um, One, interestingly, which is a Conservative seat notionally now. So he's really signalling by going there that, yes, he's prepared to take the fight to the Conservatives. And another, which was exactly the type of seat that Tony Blair won for New Labour in 1997 and Gordon Brown's now desperate to cling on to. David Cameron meanwhile went up to the Midlands which is the the real kind of heart of the election. Uh, Birmingham Edgebaston, classic, he went to the hospital there all part of his rebranding, he cares about the NHS and Birmingham Edgebaston of course majority for Labour at the moment of 2000 exactly where he needs to win if he wants to become the single largest party but then Interestingly, after that, he went on again to Leeds, central Leeds, Hillary Benn's seat, safe as houses with the Conservatives a distant third place. And so what David Cameron's saying there, I think, is that he wants to go into enemy territory, not so much because he's got a cat's chance of hell in winning, he hasn't, but because he wants the rest of the country to see that he's not a kind of party of the squirearchy anymore. He's prepared to go into any enemy territory as a good one-nation Conservative man. And what about Nick Clegg? Well, Nick Clegg's big dilemma for this election, as it always is for Liberal Democrats, is is he going to fight the Conservatives first and foremost, or is he going to fight Labour first and foremost? He resolved that by going to his party's seventh target seat, which is Watford, where Labour's just ahead, and then it's the Lib Democrats and the Conservatives separated only by a few hundred votes. So he chose Watford because he could say he wants to fight equally hard in both directions, and so he won't upset people on either side. I was surprised to read that the Tories still haven't decided how they'll fulfil David Cameron's promise to recognise marriage in the tax system. I mean, is there a wider thing here that the parties haven't quite worked out the details of their manifesto? Well, there's a wider thing here, which is whoever wins the election is going to be completely bust, and all the politicians are involved in a bit of a conspiracy of silence to pretend that they can put off pain in different ways, they can save money through efficiency savings. And no one's really challenging that because none of them really want to tell the public how grim it is. Vote for us and we will bring blood, sweat and tears. Might have worked in 1940, but none of them think it will work now, so they're not saying it. Um, So David Cameron's tax plans on marriages uh, is is just one of many examples about that. He doesn't want to explain how that policy will work because he knows as soon as he explains how it will work, then some whiz kid's going to be able to say, oh, that'll cost 2.5 billion, where are you going to get that from? 
There's still a few days left of MPs' business in the Commons. Does that mean that some legislation is going to be rushed through? Um, well, there's still some fairly interesting bits of legislation kicking around in, in Parliament, and they could go into what's called ping-pong, which is where one chamber of Parliament, the House of Commons, says we want this, and the House of Lords says, no, you can't have it, pings it back, and then says we'll, we'll maybe adopt it if you give us these concessions. It's the end of Parliament now, so the Commons can't do what it would do in normal circumstances, which is say if the Lords don't like it, we'll ram it through a year later with the Parliament Act. Instead, it's going to be a messy negotiation. And there's some quite big ticket items there, including, for example, whether the government's half-hearted promise to uh, take, after a certain number of years, innocent people off the DNA database, where the police have arrested them and kept their DNA, the government's legislative remedy to tidy that up and deal with it is not acceptable to the House of Lords, and so we're going to see some haggling over that in the next day or two. There's also, uh, you'll remember that Gordon Brown has promised an election referendum uh, on the voting system. Uh, It looks like that's probably not going to happen now because uh, the legislation won't get through in time. But there's some quite big things then being ironed out in these last few days of Parliament. Tom Clark. Well, first-time voters could decide this election, so courting the youth vote is vitally important to all the parties. But only 37% of 18- to 24-year-olds voted in the last election in 2005. That's compared with a national turnout of 61%. According to the Electoral Commission, 22% of students aren't even registered to vote this time. The Guardian's Libby Brooks says none of Britain's political parties has so far managed to inspire young people. Well, it seems to me that their strategies for doing that are fairly muddled at the moment. I mean, obviously there's this argument that the election of 2010 is going to be the Twitter election, but actually the young people that I spoke to seem to find that approach very patronising and just pretty embarrassing being faced with Gordon Brown on YouTube. The parties have... Barack Obama's very successful effort to energise young people and get them involved in, in, in supporting his campaign back in 2008. I mean, is that a model that the parties shouldn't really bother copying in this election? I think the thing you have to remember about Barack Obama's campaign was that there was an extremely strong and new and different message underpinning all of that. And really, that was what the young people were getting excited about. How effective have Labour and the Tories and the Lib Dems been in actually getting young people to join the parties and and get out there? Do we know? Well, both the main parties, Labour and the Conservatives, have around 15,000 members of their youth organisations. But it seems to me that that truism that young people are more attracted to single issues and to single issue organisations is is correct. Labour's promising to lower the voting age to 16. What effect will that have on galvanising the youth vote? Certainly the research shows that it is the case that if you vote early, you vote often. So if the general election falls just after your 18th birthday, you're more likely to develop the voting habit and that's more likely to continue into your adult life. Have first-time voters on the whole made up their minds or is there everything to play for? Um, you know, are they, are they, is there a high proportion of floating voters among 18, 19, 20-year-olds? Certainly it does seem to be that there is everything to play for. Our own ICM polls show that voting intention is pretty evenly split amongst the parties and I think that young people are really looking 
looking out for politicians who talk to them rather than about them or down to them. Libby, young people you know, are used to voting. They vote in, uh, on reality TV shows and other things. You think that casting their vote in a general election might, be, might come naturally to them and might be something that might enthuse them, but it, that's not the case. I suppose what you have to remember is that there is a big difference between sending an email or a text message and actually getting out of bed and down to the polling station. Although it is interesting that some of the research that I was looking at showed that a much higher proportion of young people would be interested in voting if they were able to do so by text message. So maybe that's something that the political parties need to look at exploiting. Libby Brooks, and you can read an article on the youth vote by Libby today and have your say at guardian.co.uk slash politics. Also on the Guardian's politics website. Hello, I'm Matt Wells and I'm the editor of our general election coverage on guardian.co.uk and the centrepiece of our coverage is our daily live blog by Andrew Sparrow, our chief political correspondent, who is a master of the genre. He tracks all the developments as they happen with input from our correspondents in Westminster and around the country, linked to the best of our output and also highlighting that of everyone else too. Now, if you're into election stats, you must try our swingometer. Uh, There are many versions of this kind of thing out there, but ours, I can tell you, is the only one that swings three ways at once. Uh, We also have a poll of polls, and today we're launching our interactive video guide to the election with our own version of Peter Snow, chief leader writer Julian Glover. That's all at guardian.co.uk slash election2010. Barack Obama has spelled out the circumstances under which the United States would be prepared to use nuclear weapons. He's ruled out America's use of the atomic bomb in response to any attack from a non-nuclear state. And the president says the policy is part of his goal of a world free of nukes. Our diplomatic editor is Julian Borgia. Well, what he's done is he's narrowed the use of the U.S. nuclear arsenal. Uh, he's said that they wouldn't use the nuclear arsenal uh, in the retaliation for a biological or chemical attack. So that is a significant departure from the Bush-era doctrine where uh, nuclear weapons were seen as a more flexible tool that could be used in really all sorts of circumstances against a range of threats. So what he's done is he's narrowed it down, but he hasn't narrowed it down quite as much as the arms control lobby would have liked to have uh, seen him do. He hasn't said the sole purpose of nuclear weapons is to deter nuclear attack. He just said that's the fundamental purpose. So he's gone along, uh, quite a way along the road to, towards narrowing down the, 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 the role of uh, nuclear weapons, but he hasn't gone the whole way. Nevertheless, Obama's conservative opponents are likely to characterise this as a a threat to America's security. Yes, I mean, in that Obama has been under kind of fairly consistent attack from the the Republicans and uh, the right wing uh, in the US. He's trying to ensure against that by making sure that the Pentagon and the chiefs of staff are on side and backing his policy. So when they go to uh, Congress, Uh, he will have a lot of uniforms standing behind him. And it comes amid a flurry of diplomacy on nuclear security, doesn't it? That's right. Uh, It's really all happening in in a rush. Uh, Just a a couple of weeks ago, uh, signed the START Treaty with with Russia, with Dmitry Medvedev, uh, agreeing to new limits on uh, on strategic nuclear arms. Uh, And then coming up uh, early next week, is a nuclear security summit 
which is uh, about making sure that the stocks of fissile material around the world are really are under lock and key and not vulnerable to being stolen by terrorists. And then in May, you've got the, uh, the review conference of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And that's really what it's all about. What's going on here is that the uh, nuclear weapon states, but the U.S. in particular, is trying to reduce the role of nuclear weapons so it can say to those states that don't have nuclear weapons, look, we don't need them so much anymore. There's no reason why you should arm yourselves because a lot of the non-weapon states are getting quite fed up with the inequity on the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty in which there's a a nuclear club that has weapons and a whole lot of nuclear have-nots that are told not to acquire weapons. My name's John Dennis. You're listening to Guardian Daily. Britain has cancelled part of its order of swine flu vaccine. The UK ordered 90 million doses, enough to vaccinate the entire population. But now the government struck a deal with the drug company GlaxoSmithKline and the Department of Health will reduce its order by about a third. The Guardian's health editor, Sarah Bosley, explains why. Well, the government ordered a vast amount of swine flu vaccine, uh, enough to immunise everybody in the population if they really wanted to, with some 90 million doses. Um, And sometimes you might get one dose or you might get two, so it would have covered everybody. And that's more than any other country ordered. And we've come to a situation where we've realised that actually we don't need it anymore because we've got very, very few cases and it's really been quite mild over this winter. So clearly it's not needed and they have to get shot of it. Um, They've cancelled the order they had with one company called Baxter Healthcare. We'd ordered 30 million doses from them. And now they've done a deal with GlaxoSmithKline to reduce the amount that they're going to have to pay out to, to that company, uh, with which it had a bigger order. This was 60 million doses. Why did the UK order more than other countries? I think we really thought, or certainly the government's flu advisers were suggesting that this really could be the big one. And you got the impression very much that the chief medical officer, Sir Liam Donaldson, was really on board with that. He was really concerned that this was going to be a massive pandemic. And uh, comparisons were made with 1918 and Spanish flu. Well, a lot of people at the time said that's not exactly accurate because that was in different circumstances. You had soldiers fighting in the trenches and all sorts of other conditions made uh, flu far more um, infectious and and damaging than it it would be today. Today we have modern medicines, of course, and modern equipment to keep people going. But um, there was this fear that we know that one day there will be a massive pandemic and everybody assumed this was it. It looks now as if it wasn't. But it wasn't just the government, was it? I mean, the World Health Organization uh, warned of a pandemic, didn't it? They certainly did, and gradually ratcheted it up until we got to level six, which was the the biggest level of the highest level of pandemic. And I think the World Health Organization and the UK authorities were certainly listening to the same people. They were probably talking amongst themselves and and get, you know being impressed by each other. Um, it's not to say that this was necessarily the wrong decision. With with the beauty of hindsight, you can see that it wasn't obviously as severe as everybody, as, as those people thought it was going to be. But of course, there are plenty of people now who um, speculate that worse things were going on. And the Council of Europe is at the moment holding an investigation into whether people within the pharmaceutical industry were uh, covertly or um, in some way influencing the World Health Organization and other politicians um, to encourage them to buy more stocks of, of drugs and of vaccines as well. Guardian Daily, news and reports from around the world. Back 
that's the Libertines who are getting back together to play at some festivals this summer, as are Pearl Jam, Guns N' Roses and Blink-182. The Guardian's Alexandra Topping says there's a pattern emerging. Absolutely, and it's definitely um, worth getting excited about. And it's not only reunions this year that, that um, there are going to be new bands on the on the festival scene. We've also got people like NMM, who we haven't seen in, in the UK since 2003. Also, of course, Stevie Wonder playing um, at Glastonbury, which is his first ever UK festival, which is quite exciting. But in terms of the reunion, I mean, I'm sure that will bring plenty of people to festivals who may not have gone before. Um, Are these kind of older bands, older acts, grabbing all the best slots at the festivals at the expense of new talent? Well, that is what some people I've been speaking to argue, that these are headline acts that really, you know, you'd you'd hope that at least some of them would be filled by by UK acts. And of course, we have got Kasabian, who feature very heavily this season in the festivals. Um, Also, Muse are playing both Glastonbury and Reading and Leeds. But there there is a sense that there is a pretty light showing of UK bands right up at the top of the bill. The other quite interesting thing will be to see what happens to the big chill because it was taken over by a big promoter last year, wasn't it? Yeah, that's a, that's really one to watch, I think. Um, the big chill was one of the founding principles of, of, of independent festivals. You know, it was started off in a very small way and ran in a kind of slightly charming, shambolic, careering from catastrophe to catastrophe from year to year. And then last year, couldn't actually continue anymore and was taken over by Festival Republic which is uh, the biggest producer and runner of, of, of festivals in the UK now they also do and they run Glastonbury they also do Reading and Leeds and uh, Latitude. Isn't there a danger that music festivals become indistinguishable from one another? Absolutely and that's what um, many people were saying when when the Big Chill was taken over people I speak to do say you know there's such a uniform makeup now to, to to many of the festivals but we do you know there is still a very strong festival culture in this country and there are still many smaller festivals who who are trying to do something slightly different I think you know one of them that's caught my eye in the last couple of days is the Hop Farm Festival which is run by Vince Power who is um he used to own Reading and Leeds himself and then before he sold it. And they've got um, Bob Dylan playing, but with no branding and no sponsorship. They've managed to kind of get a very folky feel to, to that festival without the, the same names as everybody else. So I think there is, um, there is a fear that that's going to happen, but I think for the moment at least there is still plenty of choice out there. Alexandra Topping. Today's edition of Guardian Daily was produced by Ben Green. I'm John Dennis. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.